Welcome, friends. You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We got to apologize to our audience for a slight delay. We had some technical difficulties, but you know, we're here. We're live. We're feeling fresh. We're feeling good. We're looking good. You're looking good. I'm looking <laughs> good. We got a hot show today. So I'm excited. We do. Well, you know, good things come to those who wait. So uh, while we do apologize for the delay, uh, we do have one of my favorite produce shows uh, ready for you guys. Um, so we're going to have Bill Fletcher Jr. on to have what I believe is uh, one of the most important conversations to have on the left, which is strategy. What can we do to build a broad coalition and what we should be looking out for in regard to some of the populist rhetoric coming from the likes of Tucker Carlson and other right wingers. Uh, we are also going to do our super chats earlier today. So we're going to do super chats after our decode segment. So if you want to send in your question or your comments, do it earlier today. We're not going to end the show with Super Chats. We're going to do it right in the middle, right after our Decode segments. Um, and Nando, your Decode segment, you want to give them a little taste, a little tease? Well, we're going to unpack some of this uh, critical race theory stuff um, and all the hoopla that has been uh, kicked up as a result. And so we'll get into that and it should be interesting. I want to discuss uh, predictive policing, which uh, relies on artificial intelligence. To, Sounds terrifying. Uh, it, it is. I'm because scared it is. of your segment. It is terrifying. <laughs> Uh, you should be. Everyone should be. But the good news is, I think if the left provides alternatives to the increasing crime rates in the U.S., um, we might be able to win and, and ward off uh, some of these awful policing um, habits and uh, technological advancements. Now, before we get to all of that, though, we do have um, a hot topic we want to weigh in on, and it has to do with Excellent reporting over at The Intercept. They have obtained leaked audio of a conference that Joe Manchin had with billionaires, and it gives you a little sense of how the sausage is made, really. Uh, this is the kind of conversation that we suspect happens, uh, but we usually don't have this kind of proof of it. So let's get right to it. Why don't we discuss? So... The Intercept obtained audio from a Zoom meeting that Senator Joe Manchin, a more conservative Democrat, had with a group of billionaire donors. Now, these billionaire donors are part of a group called No Labels, and oh, it's yeah. very clear <laughs> that what they want, Nando, is to keep things the way that they are. They don't want any reform. They don't want any real change. And it's clear that they like the legislative filibuster in the Senate, much like Senator Joe Manchin does, because that allows bills to go to the Senate to die, right? That's why mm -hmm. we don't get bold change. Now, um, it's a rare glimpse into um, how this system of legalized bribery works. There were some portions of that call where Manchin implied partaking in actions that are actually illegal, which I'll, I'll tell you about in just a moment. But let me give you some context before we go to the first clip. Um, as Ryan Grimm and Lee Fong over at The Intercept write, the meeting was hosted by the group No Labels, a big money operation co-founded by former Senator Joe Lieberman that funnels mm -hmm. high net worth donor money uh, to conservative Democrats and moderate Republicans. So, Let's get to what I think is one of the more relevant parts of uh, Joe Manchin's suggestion to these billionaires. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Right now, what I'm asking for, I need to go back. I need to find three more Republican, good Republican senators that will vote for the uh, commission 
So the least we can tamp him down to where people say Republicans won't even do the simple lift. The common sense of basically voting to do a commission that was truly bipartisan. Uh, you know, so once the people, and it really, it, it, it just really, uh, uh, emboldens the, uh, far left saying, I showed you, I, you know, uh, how's that bipartisan working for you now, Joe? Uh, those are the hard things. That's where I need help, Dan. So that's where he needs help, Nando, because uh, he is failing to provide a single example of bipartisanship in the Senate. Bipartisanship is what he continues to cite as his reasoning for maintaining the legislative filibuster in the Senate. And so what he's saying is, listen, help me out. All right. Please bribe Republican lawmakers in the Senate to vote in favor of the January 6th commission so we can give this illusion of bipartisanship in the Senate and maintain the Senate filibuster. Yeah. Um, bipartisanship, baby. Uh, bipartisanship, we've talked about it in the past. Bipartisanship sucks. It's the worst thing ever uh, because uh, anything, any bill that is bipartisan is by definition like going to be awful. Like there's just no good bills that are that are bipartisan. Um, if it is bipartisan, it it's awful, which is why, you know, Joe Manchin and his donors love it. But yeah, it's just funny that uh, he has to use the specter of the far left to uh, try to convince these people to get... Just a couple of Republicans for this uh, January 6th commission, which will do nothing, which will like affect them in no way. You know, Uh, I mean, obviously, the thing is, like, politically, it's very difficult for Republicans to support that because, like, you know, Republican voters love Trump and probably support uh, everything, you know, about Trump. And so they don't want to be seen as being anti-Trump. But like, yeah, like that they can't even do it for this kind of thing that's just going to be a toothless, non like inconsequential thing, especially for for donors, like they don't, they don't care. Right. It's not gonna, it's not gonna affect them at all. That's right, and I think that's an important point because Manchin is specifically referring to legislation that these billionaires wouldn't have a problem with. It's it's benign in in their context, right? What they're actually concerned about is what could pass through Biden's infrastructure bill, the American Families Plan. You know, some of the more I mean, you know, some of the more consequential uh, pieces of legislation uh, for billionaires, certainly, especially when there are proposals to raise taxes on people like them. Um, and I should note, right, that the 9-11, I'm sorry, the January 6th commission, which is supposed to be what? modeled after the 9-11 commission, um, they already had a vote on that. Uh, and it was blocked by Republicans in the Senate. And remember, they need 60 Republican, I'm sorry, 60 lawmakers total, meaning 10 Republican lawmakers to vote in favor of it for it to pass. The January 6th commission got 56 votes, uh, four short of the 60 needed uh, to overcome a filibuster, Mm. a thorough embarrassment for those like Manchin who claim bipartisanship is still possible in the divided Senate chamber. So he seems to know full well that this notion of bipartisanship is complete BS, but he says one thing publicly and then tries to get billionaire donors to entice Republicans uh, in order to prove his point that he knows is complete BS. Like, that's that's really the main takeaway here. So there's one other video, and this goes yes. to uh, the ele- possible illegality of what Manchin is suggesting. Uh, he wants to basically persuade these donors to entice soon-to-be-retired Republican senators to um, vote for the commission, right? But he doesn't just say, like, throw money in their direction. I mean, they're retiring. Who cares about campaign contributions? He suggests something else. Take a listen. 
Roy Blunt is a great, just a good friend of mine, a great guy, okay? You would like to think that Roy's retiring. If some of you all who might be worried for working with Roy in his next life could tell him that it would be nice to help our country, that would be very good to get him to change his vote, and we're going to have another vote on this thing. They'll give me one more shot at it. The Democrats will. If I ask Schumer and push him, he says, Chuck, I'd like to have another vote first before you rule this out completely on this bipartisan commission. You've got that. You've got basically a Richard Burr who voted for the impeachment, but then he didn't vote for this for whatever reason. And I know he thought because we're doing all these other commissions, we're not really truly doing a bipartisan commission out of the political realm that we're in right now. And, and uh, my good friend Joe Lieberman understands that. Joe, Joe, Joe's looking at things differently today than he looked at when he was inside the Senate. So just to further decode that statement, as uh, Grimm and Fong uh, write in The Intercept regarding Blunt, uh, Roy Blunt, uh, Manchin appears to be suggesting, without perhaps quite explicitly saying so, that the wealthy executives on the call should dangle future financial opportunities in (laughs) front of the outgoing senator while lobbying him to change his vote. That's that's illegal. Like, they're not supposed to do that. Yeah. No. Very not supposed to do that. Incredibly illegal. Not supposed to do that. I mean, we all know that that stuff goes on all the time. I mean, the thing is, it doesn't even need to be said explicitly. I mean, this is where um, the the battle over Citizens United um, was the the fault lines were like, you know, the 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 mere appearance of corruption is enough. You know, that the, the sort of corrupt arrangement mm-hmm. doesn't need to be explicitly outlined in a tit for tat contract. This is why I was so just frustrated with liberals who abandoned that line uh, of argument when, you know, the same criticism was made of Hillary Clinton and her Wall Street speeches that like no one said like, well, you can't prove that they like wrote a piece of paper that said like, hey, you're supposed to vote for this in exchange for all the money from the Wall Street speeches. It's like you don't need that. You just you just need to just understand the whole scheme and then you could just do it and then no one has to even talk about it. But this is just hilarious that Manchin is stupid enough to like talk about it on a phone call. So for lack of a better term, I mean, it is, it is pretty incredible. And, you know, I can't help but think of um, a wonderful political scientist that Cale Brooks actually uh, turned me on to. He's no longer with us, unfortunately, but Peter Mayer, because when we look at, the Democratic and Republican Party, when it comes to a lot of fundamental issues that impact our lives materially, there really is little difference, right? A lot of the political war in this country, um, at least in Capitol Hill, is fought over some social issues, cultural issues. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to questions of war, when it comes to questions of wealth redistribution, uh, labor empowerment, all of that stuff, I mean, those those conversations are gone. They're not really being had um, in the walls of, uh, you know, the Capitol building. And so it's something to keep in mind when you really hone in on the topics that politicians decide to amplify, right? Is it really because they find those issues important and want to do something about it? Or is it a way to deflect from the issues that actually impact us on a regular basis? And, you know, when we have these very clear cults of personality in politics, those cults of personality honestly like serve as a substitute 
for the robust um, political discussions and debates that should be taking place right now. So I think legalized bribery, and in this case, clearly there's a suggestion of illegal bribery as well, um, (laughs) is part of what makes these two political parties so similar on the issues that do impact our lives. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the I mean, the revolving door is just, you know, it's it's so flagrant. It's it's just so if people like really understood just how much how like how flagrant it was, um, it would horrify everyone because it's just it is just absolutely disgusting. The amount of money that these people can make uh, after after leaving office, like they can make they, they essentially become millionaires um, if they if they aren't oh, millionaires yeah. already. Yeah. So. Well, most of them are in Congress. And I remember doing a segment on this show about representation in Congress, and it was about representing the working class, right? Because if you look at... And also, I just... Look, Manchin isn't going to have any type of pushback. There will be no consequences for what he suggested in that leaked call, right? No. But... The reason why and and the reason why I say that is because there's literally insider trading happening in the Senate as we speak, like their stock portfolios outperform the stock market. It's insane. Right. And it's because they're the ones who decide on legislation that impacts the very businesses that they're invested in. I mean, the corruption is much more widespread and it's not just like campaign donations. Um, It happens in so many other ways. Uh, The revolving door, the kind of jobs that are uh, provided for these people after they're, you know, done with Congress. Uh, The yes, the campaign donations and also the um, the fact that they can invest in individual stocks. Like it just it's amazing to me that that's allowed. But that's our I'm, system. I'm trying to imagine. I'm trying to imagine like a leaked phone call of Bernie putting pressure on some senator, being like, "Listen, listen, listen. I can offer you <laughs> athletic director at the Burlington YMCA. Okay, like you know, it's got stable, stable job with good benefits. It's got a great hot dog stand on the corner. That you can just, you know, and it's it's just a wonderful, uh, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, yeah. this one time, I wasn't there, but this one time he had dinner with um, Jenk and a few other people from TYT. And, you know, it was a nice restaurant, apparently. And so they wanted to buy him dinner. And uh, when it came to him, they're thinking like he's going to order a steak or something. He's like, oh, yeah. Spaghetti and meatballs. Spaghetti and meatballs. He just wanted spaghetti and meatballs. And it's such a birdie thing. Like, I love it. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. All right. Amazing. Well, um, why don't we move on? Uh, We have a word from a sponsor. A very good sponsor of ours. Yes. It is Juneteenth. And this month, June, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag. For as long as you are a subscriber, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month. And if you join in June, you'll get these four books, The Revenge of the Real, Post-Pandemic Politics by Benjamin Bratton. Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, Finding a Home in the Ruins of Modernism by Owen Hatherley. China in One Village, The Story of One Town and the Changing World by Liang Hong. And Comrade, an Essay on Political Belonging by Jody Dean. You know, I'm I'm really curious to read that book about the village in China. That sounds like a really good one. That actually sounds like a good one, yeah. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah. 
All right. Well, everyone check out the Verso Book Club and special thanks to Verso for being one of our partners. Yes. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about predictive policing, um, something that sounds scary because it absolutely is scary. But if we can get ahead of it, if we can provide alternatives, uh, I think we can maybe mitigate uh, some of this Silicon Valley based uh, nonsense that could really, really destroy whatever we have left of our civil liberties. So let's do it. This week, Joe Rogan repeated a common myth regarding the rising violent crime rates in the United States. And cops don't do anything if someone jumps into someone's backyard, they don't arrest them. Like you have to do like $900 worth of theft before they'll even arrest you. Really? And if they do arrest you, they just put you right back on the street. And has again. it Nothing always happens. been that way or is this no. after the defunding? After, after the defunding. Yeah. Well, that's the defunding of the police in Austin's been a disaster too. And New York. New York's been a disaster. It's, de- it's terrible everywhere. It's a terrible yeah. idea. The idea that you're going to – and also the idea that you're going to send social workers to handle someone's domestic violence case is fucking bananas. Now, the problem, other than repeating myths before a large and impressionable audience, is that it – It's not true. There really is no evidence that there have been notable decreases in local police budgets throughout the country. In a few cases where city councils, for instance, have agreed to redirect police funding to other social programs, those measures haven't even taken place yet. They haven't been implemented quite yet. So to blame the rise in crime on defunding the police is just inaccurate. In fact, why don't we actually hear from a cop about this very issue? Laura Cooper, executive director of the Major Cities Chiefs Association, which represents police executives in the United States and Canada, says that the defund the police movement, quote, has not been pervasive, end quote, across their membership cities. And she noted, in a lot of places, they've actually increased police budgets. In fact, if you look at Austin, where Joe Rogan notoriously moved to after besmirching the liberal bastion of Los Angeles, the city council did, in fact, vote to cut the police budget. But there is a catch. So uh, Austin hasn't technically defunded police, but the city council did vote last year to cut the police department's budget by one third, though measures uh, or through measures that included reorganization, but it has not been implemented quite yet. Um, So that's an important uh, takeaway from Austin specifically. And if you look at the broader picture, it's even more clear that scapegoating the defund movement as the cause for violent crime is just unfounded. For instance, a Bloomberg City Lab analysis of 2020 and 2021 police budgets from the 50 largest cities reveals most major U.S. cities, including those that have swung left since the 2016 presidential election have been unwilling, unwilling to make meaningful cuts. And what about all those Democrat-led cities, right? They might sign off on a Black Lives Matter mural in front of Trump Tower, but aside from the performative politics, there's a lot of data indicating that they've actually done the exact opposite of what the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement advocated for. In fact, more than half of cities where Democrats gained shares maintained or even increased uh, their police budgets. Out of the 42 major cities where Democrats gained share, 24 increased police spending for fiscal year 2021, while 18 of them made cuts. Now, in fact, it doesn't even really matter where you live in the country. Even if you're living in a 
part of the country that did vote to decrease or redirect some of that police funding. The truth is crime is up everywhere, all across the country, especially violent crime like homicides and murders. Uh, Cooper, the person that I referred to earlier about um, how the defund movement is unfounded, added the major cities chiefs association data shows violent crime has increased even in the first quarter of 2021, regardless of whether cities increased or decreased their police budget. In fact, um, you know, the spike in violent crime is not something that should be ignored, right? So there are myths out there about what's causing the spike in violent crime. And unfortunately, a lot of those myths are being uttered by GOP lawmakers who want to use it as a political tool to fearmonger and to campaign. Um, but the left needs to be honest about the reality of these increasing crime rates. And more importantly, we need to have a discussion about what we can do, how we can offer alternatives to ensure that the pendulum does not swing from a more criminal justice reform side to a brutal tough on crime side, which is likely to happen if we ignore this issue. So uh, let's take a look at just how bad crime has gotten. The 80% spike in Minneapolis homicides this year is part of a nationwide surge in murders during the pandemic. We're seeing something historic here. Jeff Asher is a crime analyst in New Orleans who has studied 2020 data for more than 50 cities. And in those cities, murder is up uh, about 35, 36% this year relative to last year, um, which to put that in some perspective, the largest national year-to-year change we've ever had is a 12.5% increase. While most crime, including home burglaries and robberies, has gone down, murder rates have risen sharply, both in large cities like New York, Chicago, and Seattle, and in smaller ones like Lubbock, Texas, and Greensboro, North Carolina. Now, violent crime, of course, uh, has a huge impact on communities, not just uh, toward people who are actually injured or killed as a result of this crime, but it has a crippling effect psychologically on members of the community. This is a serious problem that should be addressed head on. So what exactly explains the spike in, in violent crimes? Even though most police budgets have not been cut uh, as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement, The reality is that policing did change a little bit. They took a more hands-off approach during the coronavirus pandemic. In fact, uh, here's police chief uh, of Los Angeles, Michael Moore, um, explaining exactly why. Like in many U.S. cities, COVID-19 has led to police staffing shortages and handcuffed efforts to target violence. We're not having meetings, social interactions and engagements that we would normally have to help stem this. We've had more than 800 of our personnel that have uh, come have come down with the COVID virus. We have two that we have lost, two of our employees, one an officer and one a detention officer. So we know firsthand the impact of this pandemic. So during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, police did seem to take a a more hands-off approach, which is hard to believe considering all of those brutal videos that we've seen of uh, police using excessive force and brutality to respond to Black Lives Matter protesters. But when it comes to, uh, you know, most interactions with people committing crime, it seems like uh, the police decided to kind of let things go here and there in order to avoid uh, contracting the virus or putting themselves in some sort of... uh, Uh, dangerous situation as a result of the virus. Um, But does that really explain all of the crime? 
No, definitely not. It could be a factor. I would probably say uh, a small factor. Uh, But when you consider scaled back policing during the pandemic and the explosion of guns in the country, you start to see this dangerous cocktail, which I think does, to some extent, increase uh, crime. For instance, FBI data suggests nearly 40 million guns were sold last year, a 40% increase from 2019. New data from Northwestern University and the Harvard Injury Control Research Center found roughly 20% of those who bought guns last year were first-time gun owners. The research also found 39% of American households now own guns, up from 30 two percent five years earlier. And look, there are other factors at play. Uh, The opioid epidemic didn't go away. It didn't just magically disappear just because the media decided to stop talking about it or our politicians stopped addressing it. It's still very much a problem. And the number of people addicted to opioids has only increased during the pandemic, probably because People have been struggling with economic anxiety, uh, this system of inequality, and oftentimes when people resort to drugs, they're looking for escapism, and opioids unfortunately fall under that category. But I do think it's worth discussing the biggest impact on crime, and that's poverty. Poverty and crime are connected. In fact, as our trusty producer Kale Brooks mentioned, Poverty means you lack the means to meet your needs, and people turn to alternative means to get those resources. That increase in the immiseration of working people is tied to the decline of the labor movement and the ripping apart of the welfare state. When that happens, all that's left to deal with um, is social problem. uh, All that's left to deal with social is social problems is police. So. I think that that's actually a really good point. And to uh, help reinforce that point, it's worth listening to Dr. Cedric Johnson, who touched on this during a 2019 talk. He specifically looked at how the neoliberal project scaled back crucial resources that helped to close the inequality gap. After the major civil rights legislation in the 1960s, on the matter of health disparities, there's serious gains made by black people from that period going on, right? That the gaps begin to close on a number of different indicators in terms of health, health disparities. So life, expecta- you know, life uh, expectancy, uh, child morbidity, all those things begin to, to close, right? You begin to see black people catching up in a way. When does it stop, though? It stops in 1980s onwards with, with neoliberalization. When all of those programs that have been crafted, you know, through the great society, intended to try to help working class and, and poor blacks, when those things are pulled out. And then you see expansion of inequality, expansion of disparities from the, that point onwards. So again, these things are not faded, right? This is a choice that we're making as a society. It's the choice of certain groups of people to, uh, to live with that kind of, of uh, inequality. I mean, when you really think about it, the neoliberal project and how it led to uh, the inequality that we're experiencing today, not only has uh, an economic impact on people, it has an impact on what people are basically 
what people have to resort to in order to survive. Um, so when opportunities, especially economic opportunities, are scaled back, people disproportionately end up relying on criminal means to make a living. In fact, uh, Dr. Cedric Johnson uh, refers to that or uh, talks about that in more detail in this next clip. And that's essentially what you get in the 1970s and 80s in a lot of cities. Thousands of young black men and some older ones having to depend on, you know, piecemeal work, informal economy, criminalized forms of work in order to survive. Now, not only during the 1980s do we get the rollback of uh, the welfare state, or at least the beginnings of it, the Democrats would do their part in the 90s to demolish public housing, you know, privatize various forms of, of support. But we also get this process of revanchism that I mentioned, right? This take back of the city, which is still ongoing, right? So we experience it now. Um, if you have the money in your pocket, it's the good coffee, you know, uh, it's being able to have access to all sorts of different coffee and alcohol and cocktails and, you know, the bon vivant urban life. But that's made possible through uh, aggressive policing. That talk is on YouTube. Uh, the top comment on it says, I'm here because Michael Brooks sent me. Uh, please watch it because it's an excellent talk. And I certainly got a lot out of watching it. Now, um, he talks about the, you know, he talks about policing and he talks about um, the brutality of it. And we honestly have quite a few examples of what that policing looks like. Unfortunately, it is now coupling up with Silicon Valley-based technology, things like artificial intelligence, to go even further in essentially speculating over who is likely to commit crime in the future. It's something known as predictive policing. And it's something that we absolutely need to push back on because it does not address the root of the problem. It doesn't address what causes crime. All it does is uh, essentially provide more of a police state to indiscriminately spy on us, roll back our civil liberties, and essentially do whatever it takes to protect the system of neoliberalism that has led to the inequality that we're experiencing right now. The policing that we're experiencing in America is all about protecting capital. It's not about protecting and serving. Now, uh, let's talk a little more about predictive policing, what it looks like, and how we need to push back against it. So um, here's a look at what a predictive policing program in Los Angeles looks like. Say you're living in Los Angeles and you just got out of prison. The LAPD could be keeping tabs on you through a program known as Operation Laser. It uses crime, arrest, and field data to determine where violent crimes are likely to take place and who will perpetrate them. Laser predicts who will commit a crime before a crime actually happens. The laser program tries to predict who might commit violent crime using a point system. For example, if you're on probation, that's five points on your record. If you're in a gang, that's another five. A stop by police can get you another point. The people with the highest scores in each of L.A.'s 21 divisions are placed on a list called the Chronic Offender Bulletin. You tally up all those numbers. Some folks end up with two points. Some folks end up with 40 points. Uh, those that, are, that end up with the highest number of points, we'll take a look and see where are they now. The most troubling thing about the Chronic Offender Bulletin, it's recriminalizing people who have already been on parole, who have served their time. 
I mean, think about how crazy that is. And by the way, there's no transparency. So you have a local police department tallying up the number of times you've been stopped by cops on the road for something even as simple as a, a traffic ticket, right? Or a traffic violation. And then they use that data, that very data to predict your future criminality. And what's terrifying about it is it leads to quite a bit of harassment because if you've already been marked as a future criminal, cops are going to be keeping a close eye on you. And it does lead to this, um, you know, environment of harassment. If that particular predictive policing program wasn't sketchy and scary enough, I think it's worth looking at what's going down in Pasco County, Florida, because you know Florida. They got to be extra, and they always take it one step further. So Bobby Jones had been identified as a target by the Pasco Sheriff's Office intel- Office's intelligence-led policing program. Police had gathered records of Bobby's previous interactions with law enforcement and were using his history to produce predict he would be a troublemaker in Pasco County. So Bobby Jones is not an adult. Bobby Jones, at the time that this was taking place, was a 16-year-old who had gotten in trouble with his previous school due to marijuana possession, and he also got into a physical fight with another student. His family wanted a fresh start, so they moved from their hometown to Pasco County, Florida, hoping that they could, you know, just start over again and and have good lives. But unfortunately, that was um, completely destroyed by the police department there that had already determined, uh, without even meeting Bobby Jones, that he was a troublemaker who needed to be harassed. And they did harass him incessantly. Bobby um, had to deal with them literally just showing up to his house. Uh, At one point, they decided to help themselves to entering their home, the family's home, and they found baggies that did not have marijuana, but had marijuana residue. And uh, the 16-year-old ended up spending three weeks in in juvenile hall as a result of that. Now, a months-long ordeal followed, which Bobby's father, Robert Jones, described as a horror story of police showing up at the family home, sometimes multiple times a day or in the middle of the night, to inquire about Bobby or ask to enter the home. Anytime there was a crime in the neighborhood, such as burglary, uh, Bobby was a suspect. As many as 18 officers would show up at the home, banging on windows and yelling at his young daughters while they were hiding under the bed. So the situation just kept going on and on and on. And little did uh, Robert, the father, know that the local schools were actually sending data about students to the police department so they could basically beef up their data and use this system of predictive policing to hone in on certain individuals, in this case, students. From October of 2015 through April of 2016, Bobby, who had no previous criminal history, was arrested five times. None of those arrests resulted in a conviction. His home was ransacked, laptops and phones seized, and he ultimately fled their home in the middle of the night to avoid further harassment by police. Through this whole ordeal, it became abundantly clear that school districts were in fact sharing data about their students with local police departments. That data was then used to beef up the predictive policing, right? So the partnership gave the police access 
to data relating to students' grades, attendance, and behavior, as well as any history of abuse or other adverse childhood experiences. School records were used to... uh, uh, School records were used to allocate students one of four labels, on track, at risk, off track, or critical. Getting a D grade or having a parent or sibling go to prison could be enough to put a child in the at-risk category, according to PASCO's own 83-page intelligence-led policing manual. I mean, it's just absolutely terrifying. And the family fought back. Luckily, they fought back, and there were some efforts to scale back what this particular local police department was doing. So the Department of Education actually got involved and realized that this data sharing between the schools and the police department was uh, against federal regulations. Under FERPA, as the regulation is known, a school is not allowed to disclose personally identifiable information from a student's education records without consent, although there are some exceptions for emergency situations. It's kind of unclear what those emergency situations are. It seems a little subjective. Uh, But nonetheless, at least there was some effort by the federal government to push back against what was happening in this Florida community. Now, another disastrous part about all of this is how predictive policing, which again relies on algorithms and artificial intelligence and data uh, regarding students' grades and records and all that, it provides a veil of objective and non-discriminatory policing. The fundamental question here is, can we trust the data and algorithms that police are using to predict crimes? Algorithms and big data models simply take inputs, crunch them up to create outputs. So if your inputs are biased, your outputs are going to be biased. You don't need to look far to find troubling examples of algorithmic bias. In 2016, Microsoft introduced an AI chatbot called Tay, which quickly started repeating racist and anti-Semitic comments it picked up on Twitter. Then there were those problematic Google autocompletes, which are based on popular human searches. In January, a Google search for Islamists are turned up results like Islamists are evil, and Hitler is turned up Hitler is my hero. And there was also the time the Google Images algorithm mistook black people for gorillas. So what happens if prejudice data makes its way into police work? This is seven. For Barry Williams, that risk is personal. The biggest fear I have with predictive policing in my son is that he will be profiled. Uh, I'm sure he probably will experience that at some point in his life already, but I don't need something making that easier. So, in other words... If predictive policing relies on data from flawed policing, um, from practices that have been discriminatory, whether it be racially motivated or overly punitive, all this technology would do is perpetuate more of the failed system that we're trying to change. So don't let anyone make you think or or persuade you that uh, technology-based policing using artificial intelligence is somehow non-biased. Remember, the very people creating uh, the technology in the first place might have their own biases that seep into the technology. So it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, But the bigger picture that I want to focus on now is how... We thought of policing prior to the pandemic, prior to the spike in violent crime. There were aggressive efforts to push back on militant policing, and there were some gains in that regard. But what we need to be careful about is 
the fact that if the left doesn't provide an alternative to that type of policing, the GOP and maybe even Democratic lawmakers will continue fear-mongering about the rise in crime rates, thus persuading people to maybe give up some of their civil liberties and privacy rights in order to support this kind of policing to feel safe. We can't let that happen. We need to provide better alternatives. And the good news is there are case studies. There's history to look at uh, to see how there have been uh, wonderful programs that have actually worked, economic opportunities that have actually pulled people away from a life of violence and crime. So let's talk about possible solutions. While researching about these possible solutions, I came across a perspective that should be explored more. So what if local governments actually spent nothing on indiscriminately surveilling innocent people and instead spent that cash on strengthening communities? The, the real issue for us is what is the correct response? Harris Calvin points to a number of community-based violence prevention programs, like violence interrupters, which send community members to immediately meet with shooting victims to try to avoid retaliation. But the pandemic and the need for social distancing put many of these programs on hold. There's actually a lot of truth to that. In fact, the Daily Beast touched on it just a little bit. I wish they explored it a little more. But uh, Rachel Cohen writes, the pandemic weakened community institutions that experts say typically help deter crime. Patrick Sharkey, a sociologist and criminologist at Princeton, has said the corresponding disconnection from places like schools and pools and rec centers all help increase the conditions that may lead to violent behavior. Roman at the University of Chicago, too, has argued that the disruption of routine activities for large numbers of young men in poor areas likely contributed to violence with other young men in similar situations. Now, those community-based programs are important, uh, and having this sense of community, having something positive and productive that people can focus on certainly does have uh, an impact on crime. It certainly does lower crime. But I want to think bigger than that, because really what we should be thinking about is what this country has experienced in dipping crime rates um, as a result of economic opportunities being provided for people. Economic opportunities and state spending on community programs is a clear solution to tackling crime. If we don't address the root of crime, all we can expect is more aggressive policing to continue brutalizing the poor. And history does tend to repeat itself. I want to read a few excerpts from a Jacobin piece uh, that is very relevant to this discussion. John Clegg and... Um, Andiner uh, Usami, Usmani uh, argue in Catalyst that the choice to respond to the 1960s crime wave with more incarceration lay not in white racial animus, but in the failure to build an egalitarian welfare state in America, the direct result of the underdevelopment of this country's labor movement. Without a strong working class movement to force the state to redistribute wealth from the rich to the poor, social democracy was a dead letter in America. This meant the American state was left with only one uh, only one other far less expensive option to address the violence brewing among the poorest and most vulnerable prisons. So again, it goes back to actually addressing the root of crime. 
what leads people to engage in criminal activity? Is it because they're inherently bad or is it because they felt they had no other choice to survive? And so when we think about something like a federal jobs guarantee, uh, whether it be through Biden's infrastructure bill or through something like the Green New Deal, understand the importance of that, not just in uplifting Americans economically, but also simultaneously tackling a very serious problem that we're having right now regarding crime. Nando. Some of these people, I feel like, need to watch a movie every once in a while and actually take the correct lessons from that movie. Like, did any of these people not watch Minority Report? You know, it's a great movie. Uh, Tom Cruise is in it. It's Steven Spielberg uh, directed it. It's a great movie. Watch it. You know, that's a very that's a warning to this kind of technology that is predictive crime. You know, that you you just no matter how hard you try. You're never going to be able to predict accurately like when an individual person is going to commit a crime. Come on. Um, or RoboCop or something. Just watch a movie, please. My God. Like, this is crazy. Um, but <laughs> I you think know, they did watch the movie, but see it as like a, an instruction manual. You know yeah, what I'm like, saying? Oh, that's so cool. We should do that. <laughs> you know, instead of yeah. like, you know, realizing that this is a goddamn nightmare. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the broader point is uh, well taken and it's that there has been an increase in crime in the last year or two. Um, I think that finding a neat narrative about it um, is going to be difficult and it's going to take time and research and things like that. But the fact is, it is happening. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I, a lot of people on the right like to say that it's due to defund the police, but it seems like the crime wave is happening in places where they've defunded the police a little bit and in places where they haven't defunded the police. Like it just, it doesn't seem like it's a relevant factor um, really, but, um, but it is happening and, you know, you're right to, to, to seize on the um, idea that if we don't propose anything to that, that we're going to get like a right wing backlash, Um, you know, Crime is 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 a thing that just fuels right wing politics always, um, mm-hmm. and I think it's not. And it, I think it's not a um, like. I think it's kind of instructive that the leader in the New York mayoral race is uh, a guy named Eric Adams, who was who was a, a cop, you know, who was a, a, a police chief. I mean, there there has been a crime wave in New York. I mean, it's in it, and he is supported not just by like right wing maniacs. You know, he's there's tons of uh, black and brown people who are who are supporting him as well um so yeah you, you know like and we've talked about this in the past as well that uh, the crime the increase in crime but also just like the increase in homelessness is just ripe all of that is just ripe for a um a right-wing backlash and if we don't provide um alternative policy solutions and take it seriously um then you know we're gonna we're gonna end up losing in that because some of the tendencies on the liberal left is to deny that it exists, um, mm-hmm. or to just to put your head in the sand um, and just like if you just don't talk about it, it'll go away, and it just it won't. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, in fact, I think that uh, Jen Pan did a really great job covering that topic uh, on. The Jacobin Show, it was from a few weeks back, but I really appreciated that conversation because, you know, I think there's also this fear. I mean, I, I this resonates with me. That's why I'm bringing it up. But just this fear among some people on the left regarding, like, even bringing it up because yeah. – 
there's like a pushback against bringing it up as if you're just trying to like demonize people. But no, I want the opposite. Like you want to find solutions. Um, and it's, you're right. There, there are, this is something that needs to be studied. I'm not a criminologist. I'm not an expert, right? But if you look at history and if you look at what led to a significant drop in crime, it was economic opportunity. Like it's just, it's so clear. And, and the funding of community based programs, right? That give people, um, recreational and, and communal things to participate in. It gives you a sense of community, right? Like we are very atomized right now, but if you have that sense of community, if you get together with your neighborhood buddies and even do something as simple as play base, uh, basketball, it, it distracts you from engaging in anything bad, right? Like, so yeah. anyway, I think it's a fascinating topic and I, I'm looking forward to exploring it more. Um, yeah. But with that said... I'm looking yes. forward to exploring your decode segment, Nando. Yes, it's somewhat related, I would say. Um, I think it's it's part of this whole this whole thing. You know, you may have noticed in the last few weeks ago um, that the latest front in the seemingly eternal culture war between conservatives and liberals has centered around something called critical race theory. Several states have moved to ban CRT from classrooms, including my home state of Florida. Supporters like Governor Ron DeSantis say this new rule is all about teaching the facts of our history, while opponents say it's politicizing classroom instruction. All in favor say aye. 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 The State Board of Education aye. unanimously passing a new rule, changing how history is taught in public schools. It bans critical race theory, which a UCF professor defines as a, quote, theoretical perspective and practice for examining the role of race and racism in society. Governor Ron DeSantis speaking in favor of the new rule, saying education needs to be grounded in facts. Some of this stuff uh, is, I think, really toxic. I think it's going to cause a lot of divisions. Uh, I think it'll cause people to think of themselves more as a member of uh, of a particular race or based on skin color uh, rather than based on the content of their character and based on Uh, their hard work and and what they're trying to accomplish in life. At least 16 states are considering or signed into law bills that limit how schools frame American history. But New Six learned most school districts in Central Florida don't teach critical race theory. Now, to the savvy viewer, and I'm sure all of you are very savvy, you'll recognize this is just the latest right-wing straw man. This is the 2021 version of the panic over Sharia law. That being said, the whole debate has opened up a very real problem with how both conservatives and liberals see history, namely the tendency to use history to naturalize phenomena rather than historicize them. This is something that Michael Brooks wrote about eloquently in his book Against the Web, and I think it's worth hearing him discuss what he means by that. A basic difference I would say between left and right is the difference between historicizing and naturalizing. If you're on the left, broadly speaking, you look at things and you say, what are the historical material reasons why that is happening? If you're on the right, you say that is what it is. What are the historical material reasons why that is happening versus it is what it is? The most famous example in recent memory of the reactionary tendency to naturalize something is Jordan Peterson's Consider the Lobster thesis to justify hierarchies (laughs) in human societies. So these creatures engage in dominance disputes, 
and I think dominance is the right way to think about it because lobsters aren't very empathic and they're not very social. And so it really is the toughest lobster that wins. You know, and what's so cool about the lobster is that when a lobster wins, he flexes and gets bigger. So he looks bigger because he's a winner. It's like he's advertising that. And the neurochemical system that makes him flex is serotonergic. And you think, well, who cares? What the hell does that mean? Well, tell you what it means. It's the same chemical that's affected by antidepressants in human beings. And so, like, if you're depressed, you're a defeated lobster. Like, you're, you're like this. I'm small. I'm not, you know, things are dangerous. I don't want to fight. You give someone an antidepressant, it's like up, they stretch, and then they're ready to, like, take on the world again. Well, if you give lobsters who just got defeated in a fight serotonin, then they stretch out and they'll fight again. And that's, like, we separated from those creatures on the evolutionary timescale somewhere between 350 and 600 million years ago, and the damn neurochemistry is the same. And so that's another indication of just how important hierarchies of authority are. I mean, they've been conserved since the time of lobsters, right? There weren't trees around when lobsters first manifested themselves on the planet. And so what that means is these hierarchies that I've been talking about, those things are older than trees, these hierarchies are older than trees, people. <laughs> Trying to end hierarchies goes against the laws of nature that go back literally hundreds of millions of years. Now, we on the left reject this kind of thing. It is ahistorical to think that society is just nature, that it is what it is because that's the law of nature. You see this kind of thing emerge whenever you try to discuss an alternative to capitalism. Reactionaries will scoff at you and say, what are you talking about? It's just self-evident that capitalism is just the thing. But in the last few years, there's been a new fault line in the debate, and it's that liberals have come to embrace a view of history that naturalizes racism rather than historicizes it. Here's Michael Brooks again. Now, paradoxically, this is actually a reason why right now there's a lot of conflict between people who are more socialistic and people who are more like woke, quote unquote. Because their moral dimension is better. Look, America as a racist society is correct. Acknowledging that truth versus denying that truth is a major difference, no question. However, if you read Adolf Reed, who's one of my intellectual heroes, I really hope everybody is reading him, he will tell you why racism and white supremacy is a multi-generational project in America that depends on economic conditions, that manifests in different geographies, that is inseparable for how we produce and do capitalism. And actually, it might become separable, right? Whereas some people who have a woke discourse, it just is. It's the religious foundation of America. There's no difference between any different historical periods. It's just this moral block statement. Does that make sense? That, that's what liberals believe, that racism just is, that it's part of the religious foundation of America. And the biggest proponent of this view of America's history with race, which in many ways inspired this latest round of culture war over critical race theory, was the New York Times' 1619 Project, led by Nicole Hannah-Jones. In her opening essay for the 1619 Project, Jones writes that, quote, anti-black racism runs in the very DNA of this country, as does the belief so well articulated by Lincoln that black people are the obstacle to national unity. Notice Jones's use of the DNA metaphor, a literal biological instruction manual that determines human characteristics, 
Matt Carr points out, the 1619 Project contains seven references to racism being in America's DNA. Now, it's worth noting that one cannot change one's DNA, at least not yet, as far as I know. You're simply stuck with the DNA you got, and you gotta live with it. This is a version of Jordan Peterson's lobster meme. Anti-black racism is just in America's DNA. It just is. It's a law of nature. This naturalizes our history. It is, fundamentally, a reactionary idea. And often, naturalizing something tends to lead to just bad history. The most controversial claim made in the 1619 Project is that the American Revolution was not motivated by things like taxation without representation, which is the popular explanation, but by the desire on the part of the colonists to keep the institution of slavery intact. What, what, what it has sparked, though, is, is a, a fight over history and how the history is told. Yes. You know, once this magazine came out, there were, there were many historians who, who, you know, came after you and said, no, this is, this is incorrect. The primary reason that America sought its independence from Britain was not because they wanted to maintain slavery. It was because of taxation without representation. It, it wasn't the primary cause. Why do you think there's such a resistance to slavery being one of the primary causes of America breaking away from Britain? Because we need to believe as a country that uh, our founding was pure. That yes, you know, we had some troubles, including um, holding 500,000 people in bondage. Mm-hmm. Um, but that largely we were a nation founded to be exceptional and these uh, majestic ideas. And that our founders, uh, though complicated men, were men who were righteous. But when you argue um, that our founders were, many of them, very hypocritical and that you can't just simply overlook the Mm -hmm. fact that slavery was a motivation in some of the colonies. Yes, taxation was a motivation, but also uh, the ability to keep making a lot of money off of human bondage. That is very unsettling, uh, not just to the average American, but to historians who have seen their job as protecting that founding narrative. So according to the 1619 Project, the colonists feared that by the 1770s, Britain was going to outlaw slavery and thus they needed to break away so that wouldn't happen. This narrative has been challenged by many historians. This is from friend of the show, Matt Karp's recent piece in Harper's. Matt is a Civil War historian at Princeton. He writes, quote, Willens and other critics argued that this fundamentally misrepresented the politics of the revolution. As historians from Eric Williams to Christopher Brown have explained in detail, anti-slavery sentiment in Britain remained marginal in the 1770s. Certainly, it was much weaker in London than in the rebellious colonies, where at least seven colonial assemblies had already attempted to end the importation of enslaved Africans and where the Continental Congress would ban the slave trade in 1774. As the scholar Leslie Harris put it bluntly in Politico, the protection of slavery was not one of the main reasons the 13 colonies went to war. Harris, who had been contacted by a Times fact-checker to help confirm material in the 1619 Project, wrote that she had vigorously disputed Hannah Jones's incorrect statement and was distressed to see that it had made it into print. Eventually, the Times issued a thin clarification, agreeing to change the phrase the colonists decided to, some of the colonists decided but leaving the rest of the questionable text in place. Now, when you see history through a naturalization lens, you tend to see everything through whatever natural law you've ascribed to it. If you're Jordan Peterson, you'll see everything as a way to perpetuate hierarchies. If you're a lot of modern-day liberal scholars, you see everything as a way to perpetuate racism. But what is the alternative to this? Well, yeah, Marxism. As Marxists, we approach culture and history by looking at the means of production. To oversimplify things, a society's culture is its laws, its media, its attitudes, etc. 
don't just have a life of their own. They are necessarily attached to the economic system that decides who owns what or who has to work for who. The base superstructure model is a theory for understanding how ownership of the means of production controls society. The base is made up of the means of production, all the things needed to produce something, for example machines and factories to build a car, and the relations of production, the way in which the bourgeoisie exploits the proletariat. The base shapes the superstructure as the bourgeoisie have the means to produce the news, television and film to reinforce their dominant ideology on the rest of society. This in turn maintains and legitimizes the base, preventing the proletariat from realizing they're being exploited. Thank you, kind British woman, to the tune of a nice-sounding piano. But how does this play out in our analysis of history? Well, take something like mass incarceration. The liberal understanding of mass incarceration, which has become the dominant understanding in our culture, was that it was a way to perpetuate Jim Crow. This was made popular by the book by Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow. The basic outline is that there was Jim Crow, and then it was repealed by the civil rights movement, and then there was a backlash to it from white America, and then politicians realized that they could capitalize on that white backlash through law and order politics, which led them to pass a series of laws that targeted black people and threw them into prison on a massive scale as a way to reinstitute Jim Crow, but by a new name. That is the racialized view of what happened. And while it's not like there's no truth in that narrative whatsoever, it leads out several complicating factors. The first of which is that black people overwhelmingly supported a lot of the tough on crime laws that were passed. But also, there was a real crime wave that emerged in the middle of the 20th century. This was not something that politicians invented. The question is, why did that crime wave happen? Well, here is how a Marxist scholar looks at that. Let's go back to Adana Usmani from Anna's segment. Notice that he does not deny that race plays a role, but he foregrounds the forces of production. Here he is discussing crime and punishment on The Jacobin Show. Why did that happen in the United States at mid-century? I think the short story is that the United States, in effect, is unique amongst advanced capitalist countries in that it industrialized with Europe's peasantry rather than with its own in some important sense. And so what happened, what I think is characteristic of the American labor market over the 20th century is that African-Americans after sharecropping collapsed in the South came in effect late to American labor markets and found it very difficult to make inroads into American labor markets as a result of obviously white racism, also as a result of this kind of late arrival, missing basically kind of the industrialization boat. And that's just caused, America has basically failed to replace the jobs for African-American males that were lost to the collapse of farming for the duration of the 20th century. And there's just been this persistent problem of massive levels of unemployment uh, in African-American communities as a consequence for the 20th century. Um, and, and it's that, I think, that is at the heart of the problems of the rise in violence and the rise in crime. That's kind of, as we say in the article, that's triggered by certain changes that happen post-war. But I think the core of the problem is this. The core of the problem is lies in the labor market, I think, in the United States. Now, it may seem like a subtle difference, and in many ways it is, but it is a sharper analysis. And the, sh the solutions to the problem that flow from that analysis are also much clearer you get America's under, uh, black underclass good stable jobs, and that'll improve a lot of this racism that we see in mass incarceration. The solutions to the new Jim Crow are less clear. You have to change the, the racial attitudes of white people. 
Now, a Donner's analysis is less paralyzing as well, because if you can alter the makeup of the forces of production, you will change the society. Hillary Clinton was wrong when she said that breaking up the banks won't end racism. Now, to be clear, changing the means of production is a tall ask, but it's at least possible. What you can't do is change nature. You can't change your DNA. And that's probably why a lot of mainstream liberals have so embraced this view of history, because at their core... They don't want anything to fundamentally change, in the immortal words of Joe Biden. That is why there is such a furious rejection towards any view of history that emphasizes change. As Matt Carp writes in Harper's, quote, An older tradition of left-wing American politics had much less trouble with this kind of historical thinking. Frederick Douglass plays little part in the 1619 Project, but he knew better than most that historical narratives matter in political struggles. They shape our sense of the terrain under our feet and the horizon in front of us. They frame our vision of what is possible. Douglass's famous speech about the 4th of July came at a low ebb of the abolitionist movement, just after the Compromise of 1850, which included the Fugitive Slave Act, appeared to remove the question of slavery from national politics for good. That made it all the more important for him to build an argument from history, drawing on the experience of the revolution to insist that the United States belonged not to the timid and the prudent, but to insurgents who preferred revolution to peaceful submission to bondage. Douglas's fight against antebellum timidity took courage and purpose from an understanding of history in which radical change was possible. Moreover, Douglas questioned the wisdom of any historical politics that undermined the prospects for present-day change. This did not imply a purely instrumental contempt for the past in the manner of the Trumpian right, but rather reflected a clear-eyed determination to treat history not as scripture or DNA, but as a site of struggle. We have to do with the past not only as we can make it useful to the present and to the future. We have to do the past only, sorry, we have to do with the past only as we can make it useful to the present and to the future, Douglas declared. To all inspiring motives, to noble deeds which can be gained from the past, we are welcome. But now is the time, the important time. For some scholars, this must read like rank presentism. Yet unlike the neo-originalist framing of the 1619 Project, it gets the order of operations right. The past may live inside the present, but it does not govern our growth. However sordid or sublime, our origins are not our destinies. Our daily journey journey into the future is not fixed by moral arcs or genetic instructions. Now, today is Juneteenth, which is now a federal holiday, which is great for many reasons, not the least of which means that it's an extra day we get to take off work, but also because it should serve not as a reminder of America's racist DNA, but as as an inspiring moment of possibility, of the possibility to overcome the horror of our president or our present, and to radically change it. It was a, a good slip right at the end there, Nando. Yeah. Um, it was a I'm not slip. Anna. <laughs> I know. What I'm the hell's going on? Say. Anna's having a, some camera trouble. We'll have her back on in just a second. Okay. Um, but um, just to, to follow, I mean, I think you put it, I mean, Matt puts it so wonderfully, but you also put it so, like, so kind of succinctly and perfectly like this. And obviously we're all getting this from Michael of like, uh, and Michael comes from a long tradition. I mean, this is like, this is what the left has been saying for 150 years of the importance of a materialist analysis of trying to understand social forces uh, in society um, through the the actual real uh, economic abstractions in the world that do in fact force people into situations where they have to make certain choices with limited options. And then ideology makes sense because it's trying to make sense of the actual uh, economic and material situations people are in. 
So, mm-hmm. um, and of course there's ideologies that don't match that, but those eventually, you know, get outdated. They don't, if, if like you have an idea that doesn't make sense with the real world around you, eventually, you know, you might be the only one left with that idea. It's not, it's probably not going to catch on. It's not going to be very popular. Yeah, no. And I, I think that, um, you know, thinking about Michael and, you know, rewatching, um, that Lafayette, uh, talk, um, I, you know, I was always struck with Michael's obsession with history. He was obsessed um, with reading history, but only as like in the way Frederick Douglass described in 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 his quote, only as a way to to win a better future. Like he was obsessed mm-hmm. with moments of great historical change and he was meant he was obsessed with great um victories um you know for example like uh, liberation movements against colonialism like he was obsessed with studying those you know thomas sunkara and he was obsessed with mandela and the anc he studied a lot about um you know the history of india um and things like that because he 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 wanted to use those historical examples as a way to um impulse people in the now to achieve change not to paralyze them in this feeling that um, the problems that we have are endemic to our country in such a way that they are unchangeable, right. that they are un, that you can't deny them. I mean, this is the sort of um, the the pessimistic view of history that a lot of liberals have uh, adopted. That it's just like there is something, you know. The other term that gets described a lot in in 1619 is the this this slavery as an original sin. That right. it's like it's almost like a biblical thing that we have inside of us that we can never excise, you know, no matter how hard we try, we just, we just don't excise it, you know? And I think that that just creates that pessimistic view of history creates pessimism and creates paralysis and creates the a situation in which we're, we're just stuck which you know, because how can you, how can you change something like that? You can't, um, you know, the, 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 the other way of looking at it is to see historical progress as a struggle, as, you know, fits and starts as, you know, that, that people rise up and try to change things and then they get beaten back and then they, they rise up and try to change things again. Um, and that, and that the, the objective material realities of a society are what undergirds everything. Is that it's what really kind of drives everything flows from that, um, mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, it's just it's been it's been interesting to see um, a lot of the stuff that's come out lately um, around this critical race theory um, kind of uh, hoopla. Um, but it's just it's just like it, there's this like obsession now with with history, and and that, which I normally as a history major in college and things like that would welcome, but I'm looking at it and I'm like, you guys are just fighting you you guys are just fighting in a way that like is paralyzing everyone mm-hmm. you know like that it's just there's no possibility for change in this in this fight it is just kind of like a yeah i mean it's the same it's the same with every other culture war fight right that we that we have it's just that it's just it is a per- paralyzing fight that it just um but but is particularly tr- particularly true of this Hi, Anna. Well, yeah, back. you know, <laughs> hey, sorry. I, I don't know what happened with my camera. It just decided to stop working. So you're going to have to deal with this, like, built-in <laughs> camera on my computer. But anyway, um, yeah, I just, the I think the the point that really stands out to me is, well, I guess it's more of a question that I have for 
you know, anyone who kind of like agrees with this notion that like racism is in our DNA, is in the country's DNA, then what's the point of, in fighting racism if it's in, if you can't change it, right? Yeah. Like what's the point of everything that's being done through this like 1619 project? Um, is it just to share that, you know, this this point of view that racism is in our DNA and there's nothing we can do about it? Is that the point of it? Um, and if it is, it's like this defeatist thing that, um, I, f- first of all, I don't agree with, but uh, secondly, like yields no results, has no solutions, right? Like it's just, anyway, yeah. I think I thought was a really great segment. Corey Robin wrote a book about Clarence Thomas. You know, we all know Clarence Thomas. He's a Supreme Court guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but Clarence Thomas was... Uh, a left-wing radical when he was young, when he was in college, but he adopted a lot of these. He had kind of this um, this race pessimist um, view of of radicalism, and it led him to reaction. You know, because it is kind of fundamentally at its core a reactionary view of history and of society and 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 of everything. You know, and and he's like a perfect example of of that kind of. Of, of the of the natural outflow of that view is like you then just become Clarence Thomas you just become like a the most right-wing uh, justice on on the bench um so yeah um yeah. I think that you know you it's not about denying racism and like Adana Rosmani doesn't deny racism and neither does neither does Michael Brooks or anyone who or, or Matt Carper anyone who who looks at this in this way they just don't think that it's um this kind of immutable law of nature there is no evidence to support that. It is just, it's just not, there's been plenty of societies that have not experienced that, right. you know, that, that, and, and it's something that can be overcome because if not, what's the point? Well, but it's also, it's, mm-hmm. we come to that as a conclusion by doing historical research and having, you know, a materialist framework that like we have different premises than, than liberals do. Um, but they like a lot of these conclusions because uh, it ends up fitting uh, kind of within their limited scope of what they consider politics to be, that it ends up becoming uh, moral pronouncements. It ends up being uh, individual advancement within uh, existing hierarchies that um, we end up are by historicizing race and racism. Uh, we we both have more of a, an expansive understanding of these concepts and of when they start where they are, what they do, what is their actual, what is the actual social phenomena? What is the causality of these things? We can, we can get much further in explaining these things. And so it ends up being, um, in some ways, it ends up becoming more intimidating uh, in the size. And yet it's obviously also, it actually leads to clear political programs, whereas like the liberals or the conservatives, conservatives saying, you know, this is law of nature and, you know, everyone should just, you know, everyone starts out where they are and you fight, you know, as hard as you can and the best will rise and the, the you know, the weak will fall. Liberals saying, sure, yeah, but like, you know, we should probably, you know, uh, deal with some of the, the existing inequities um, that, again, are, you know, they would probably still understand as like in naturalized terms of, you know, people, you know, you just, you, if you have a race, you're stuck with a race. And so the best we can do is, you know, uh, a little bit of affirmative action or something like that. And socialists will, of course, say that that's good, that's necessary, but we're not trying to just get everyone to the starting block in a market, in like in a fight. We want to break down existing hierarchies and existing divisions among people that this this is not a natural phenomenon. This is a social phenomenon. And so 
just as it had a life, it could potentially have a death. We think the same things when it comes to uh, when it comes to something like capitalism. That it has a we we have we really good historical research of when this as a social phenomena begins, and uh, and you know there's been a lot of people over the last 150 years that have been trying very hard to to bring about its death. But um, I think I, I should jump off because actually we have our guest here, and he'll have probably much oh, better hey. things to say about this than I could. Uh, so I'm gonna I'll jump off. You get the hell out of here, Kale. All right. Well, I'm super excited. Everyone, um, I lied. We'll do uh, the Super Chats after the interview. Um, but now let's get to our interview, which I'm super excited about. Joining us now is Bill Fletcher Jr., who is a racial justice, labor, and international activist. He's also the co-author of Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor, and A New Path Towards Social Justice, and they're bankrupting us and 20 other myths about unions. His latest piece uh, is the modern t- uh, Tecumseh and the future of the U.S. left. I hope I didn't butcher that name. Um, but <laughs> Bill Fletcher Jr., thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Pleasure. And I also am the author of A Murder Mystery, The Man Who Fell from the Sky. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Right, okay. So I want to we'll put that, that in there for those yeah. that are interested in good summer yeah, Kale. What the hell? You, 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 you know, we need we need that we need that production. We need that the screenshot of the of the murder yeah. mystery. Come on, absolutely. You got Billy. You got to send me the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't know. You got to send me it. Hardball Press. Yeah. Cool. Great. So let's let's start off with um, you know what we were just discussing in the last segment, which was um, well. First off, it's uh, Juneteenth, mm-hmm. and uh, we were just discussing the ongoing debate in the country in regard to critical race theory. Uh, would you like to jump in on that conversation before uh, we get to other topics? Yeah, I think it's um, one of the things about the U.S. is that we actively oppose history and embrace myth. Uh, that is the prevailing view in the United States, uh, that anything that is contrary to the dominant narrative uh, gets dismissed and is replaced by some sort of mythological issue. Um, so what, what that means is that periodically throughout U.S. history, we see this, there are these fights. They're essentially narrative fights. They're fights about the history, how to interpret Uh, the development of the United States and what the United States is. Fights take on, on and on. Um, And at the the final chapter of W.B. Du Bois's uh, iconic piece, The Black Reconstruction in America, the final chapter is called The Propaganda of History. And I encourage all leftists to read and study that chapter Uh, because what, what Du Bois does, and it's a great way to end the book, is to situate the attempts to revise the history of what actually happened in Reconstruction and what was going on in the motivations. And so I think what we're seeing right now is not a cultural war. Uh, This is a battle around democracy. Uh, This is a battle around um, how to interpret U.S. history. And the right wing is doing what the right wing is so good at, which is to take something in this case, critical race theory, of which they know nothing, uh, use that terminology as a way of demonizing the discussion of the truth. And and for for us on the left, our approach needs to be not about explaining 
critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the main thing. The main thing is to emphasize the truth that we're going to be the ones that will talk about the role of slavery and settler colonialism. We're going to be the ones to talk about uh, racism as a mechanism for social control. We will talk about the annexation of northern Mexico and what its implications have been, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we're the ones that are advancing the truth. And I think that we should not shy away from this battle. It is critical. What do you make of uh, there's uh, been a strange thing um, recently with. I was I found it surprising that only 14 House Republicans voted against making Juneteenth a national holiday. It seems mm-hmm. like it seems like a like back in the day that that would be a much, much there would be much more opposition um, right. to something like that. And I was struck by I don't know if you saw it, you probably did it, but Madison. Do you know who Madison Cawthorn is? That new young rep Republican rep from like I think he's North North or South Carolina. Anyway, he's like no. 28 years old and he's a House mm-hmm. he's in the House of Representatives. Um, he 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 was talking about. Um, the Second Amendment and guns, and he was like, "The Second Amendment is to protect, um, you know, uh, us against a tyrannical government. And if you if you don't think that a few guns in a few people's hands can't can't stop a military machine like the United States, look at the Viet Cong and look look what they did." And I'm like, he's just like embracing like this idea that the Viet Cong like beat the American war machine, which is just a very strange thing for a right winger to Indeed. kind of talk about. You know, it's usually like the fish called Wanda thing. You know, we tied Vietnam uh, at, at the very worst. What do you make of the of the right wings? What, what do you make of all this? I, I, I find it very confusing yeah. and kind of new. Okay, so there's, there's two interesting things in which you're raising. One is that this guy got the Second Amendment, the gun issue and Second Amendment completely wrong. The Second Amendment and gun ownership and I'd say gun fanaticism really in the United States is directly connected to settler colonialism and to racial slavery. Um, it's not about protecting people from a tyrannical government. It was that beginning in the 1600s, so-called whites had to have guns. That was part of the colonial culture and system. They had to have guns as well, uh, for the purpose of ensuring the suppression of slaves and for the acquisition, uh, and I'm using that word very politely, of land from the indigenous. I mean, that's what it was about. The Second Amendment as such was just more the gravy on that. It wasn't about protecting people from a tyrannical government. Um, so that's one thing. I think it's real. And, and again, this is something that Roxanne Dunbar-Otis has uh, written about uh, extensively. It's, re- it's very well documented and really important for us on the left to, to point out. Now, the, the first part of what you're raising, though, is interesting. Why didn't more, not that the last part wasn't, but why didn't more of these right-wingers um, vote against it? And I think uh, for cynical reasons, I think it was for many of them a throwaway, uh, you know, that that they would be able to later say while they're uh, suppressing our voting rights that they're really not racist because, look, they, they supported Juneteenth. Um, I don't think that we should make much of it. Uh, I think that it's good that this act passed. I think it's part of the battle around how we understand history. It, you know, that that people would do it for cynical reasons. Welcome to the United States. <laughs> right, right. Well, since we're on the topic of uh, the right wing and its messaging, you know, there has been this very clear trend of 
right wingers since the Trump administration to uh, pay lip service to the economic anxieties that Americans are facing. Mm -hmm. Some are referring to it as right wing populism. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to kind of tackle that head on Mm -hmm. um, and really uh, unpack what that messaging is really about. Because while we on the left have uh, very clear, like we have a very clear um, analysis of capital and 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 what we want to do about changing the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, their solutions tend to be very different. Oh, so, yeah. can you discuss that? So, yeah, thank you. Um, so, first, Trump and the Trump phenomena builds off of well, one could say five hundred years, but but at least fifty years of a reconfigured right wing. And, uh, you know, when, when um, there's this famous quote from Lyndon Johnson, who said after signing either the 64 Civil Rights Act or the 65 Voting Rights Act, I don't remember which, he said, the Democratic Party has lost the South for at least a generation. And as it turned out, mm-hmm. he was um, optimistic. Uh, and that the shift that we start to see away from the Democratic Party by large numbers of whites precedes the economic downturns that we start to uh, see in evidence in the 1970s. It's part of the the Republican Party becoming the non-Black Party. So part of what the Trump uh, phenomena was, was building off of this trend. Another part, though, was uh, very interesting for the Republican Party because he was making arguments that were very much akin to the Polish uh, right-wing populists who are in power, uh, the Justice and Freedom Party, I believe it's called, that um, identifies themselves as uh, supporters of the welfare state, but their idea is that they support the welfare state for what they see as the legitimate population, that is, for the so-called polls as opposed to anyone else. And so there's this element within Trump of speaking to both the demographic changes underway in the United States, the political victories, the victories for democracy that have been won or have been won over the 20th century, as well as aspects of neoliberalism and the uh, the declining living standard uh, for most working people, the the fear, particularly in middle and upper income among upper and income upper income whites, of being squeezed between the rich and the poor, Trump was able to play to that. And what was was interesting is that. In doing so, he overturned much of the uh, the rhetoric uh, of of the of the Republican Party. Your your point is also important because what the right wing does, what Trump and others have done, is when they do seize on economic grievances or economic stress, their answers are either. Uh, openly regressive, like let's return to the 1950s, or they focus on scapegoats, scapegoating uh, Jews, scapegoating uh, African-Americans, scapegoating uh, scapegoating immigrants, scapegoating women, etc. 
And and that's one of the reasons that we on the left have have to be very clear that sometimes we will hear these right wingers say things that will almost sound like us, but it's not. And there's no middle ground between us and them. This is a this is a fight to the finish. You know, if I may, I have one quick follow up to that, um, Nando. So, Go ahead. so I think what you're saying is so so important because you know there is, um, I think, an accurate mission for the left to build broad coalitions. And what I'm noticing right now, um, even though the left is fractured in the United States and we need to have a discussion about mm-hmm. uniting amongst us, but is this um, notion that for all these right wingers who are uttering, you know, populist language, maybe we can work with them. Maybe they can be part of the coalition. W- what is your response to that? Oh, I'm almost sorry you asked me that question. Um, <laughs> because, that, I mean... I think that it's a really great question. And my answer is that um, we have to proceed very carefully. Uh, And in most cases, well, I shouldn't put it like that. We have to proceed very carefully. Uh, And I'll give you an example. So when the Major League Baseball moved the uh, All-Star game, from Atlanta because of Georgia instituting these voter suppression uh, 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 statutes. These right-wingers basically said, now is the time to take on the, uh, the antitrust exemption that Major League Baseball has had since the 1920s uh, that has allowed the baseball industry to basically be a monopoly. Now, up until this moment, they have refused to even touch that issue. Now, in retaliation for the MLB taking steps in response to voter suppression, they want to take this on. Well, there's some people that have felt, well, okay, let's unite with them. I would say, "Mm -mm, no, uh, not so fast, because... What I'm not interested in is what is called in Europe red-brown alliances. That is uh, aligning between the left and fascist or fascist-leaning folks uh, believing that we actually share something in common. With those organized folks, we do not. We, sh- we may share things in common with people who are in the middle, people who are confused and vacillating, but for the organized right wing around something like this, I think we have to be very, very careful. Now, having said that, here's the paradox. I'm working now around uh, the issue of the Western Sahara and the opposition to the Moroccan occupation. For a peculiar set of historical reasons, there's a whole set of Republicans that are very much opposed to the Moroccan occupation. And I work with them. And we, we work fine as long as we don't talk about anything else. So I think that this is a matter of proceeding carefully and trying to understand the motives of any of these folks on the right and whether it's something that strengthens us or, in fact, strengthens them. 
I wanted to uh, pass along a uh, question that came from uh, the audience in the form of a super chat. Um, uh, they write, Juneteenth becoming a holiday is important, but it's arguably an example of performative instead of material change, such as reparations. Should the left be emphasize, emphasizing that it's not enough, or should we just take the win? Well, it's interesting that you raise that, Nando, because I've been having these debates for the last 24 hours on Facebook mm. around around mm. a Juneteenth. And uh, some of it has gotten actually quite ugly. Um, Shocking. So, uh, yeah, really, I know. There's gambling in the house. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, I would say that the point of the the point of view that the left should adopt is that this is a victory and it's not enough. Um, and we have to keep on pressing forward. Um, I think that I, I, I picked up some of what you were saying, the two of you were saying earlier. I'm very worried about cynicism. And there's too much on the left that promotes cynicism and mm-hmm. that there's no victories that are legitimate unless we get the final victory. I mean, that's essentially the message that comes through, which is very unsettling for our base. Because if that is true, then people should just simply get high and wait, right? <laughs> um, because, mm-hmm. right? Because I mean, that's essentially what people are being told. And and I so I think that this Juneteenth victory is a victory. Yes, it is symbolic, but it's it's important that it comes at this moment when we're having this debate about the history of the United States, and that's what we need to be seizing on. Just like Du Bois took on the whole question of of the Reconstruction era, and went after the forces on the right, we need to be going after the forces on the right who are saying things like um, there should be no teaching of history that makes someone feel guilty or uncomfortable because of their race and gender, right? We need to be taking these people on. We need to be taking on people that are arguing that uh, and a correct understanding of the Texas Revolution, so-called of 1836, is that it was led by slave owners and and by um, other charlatans. And it wasn't a glorious revolution of some sort. We need to be taking these things on. And so I think that the, the Juneteenth is an opportunity to do that. Did it bring us everything that we want? Of course not. Right. But but why should that even be a surprise? So I don't think that, I guess there's one other thing that someone pointed out on Facebook that I appreciated, which is that there are people that have been out there for years fighting to turn Juneteenth into a national holiday and and have seen the significance of this. And I don't think you, you write that off. I don't think you say that that's irrelevant any more than you would say that Martin Luther King's birthday becoming a national holiday is irrelevant. I, I share your this the, on the on the topic of cynicism. I think that um, you know we're seeing a lot of that um, lately, especially in the wake of of Bernie's defeat um, and Biden's great victory. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like for the left, there is a there is a very seductive instinct to say, you know, to to grapple on with the idea that the whole thing was a fraud from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, what was the point, you know, that it was all just kind of 
it was all just a fraudulent thing when it really was it wasn't fraudulent it's just we just we just lost um right. sometimes you most times you lose um right. so and and it's just that that cynicism i mean it's i i find myself sometimes in my darker moments succumbing to it especially when you have like a when you have an analysis of the situation that runs kind of deep in structure you're like oh my god look at all these like how are we gonna you know if we couldn't do it then like how are we gonna do it but you know how do you kind of overcome that so i think that we all have those moments i know i am uh and there's certain moments when um i say why didn't i become an entertainment lawyer or <laughs> wow wouldn't it be wonderful to live in monte carlo yeah right? so a lot of traffic. Yeah, yeah, but I want to see the Grand Prix every year. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so every everyone says this. And I think that that's fine. I think it's different, though. And I think that to deny the people feel that is, is uh, irrational. Um, we feel that we have suffered many defeats. Um, the odds are against us. And yet we keep fighting. Um, and we have to. So I think that we have to convey certain things in private and with our comrades and friends. I think what's, what I get angry about is what has happened on social media, where people have no filters. And they say whatever the hell is on their mind, uh, whether it's about an internal squabble in an organization or about... Um, uh, disparaging this Juneteenth. And I think that we have to take a stand against that. I think it's really harmful uh, that that cynicism is never progressive. Cynicism can sometimes appear to be revolutionary, but cynicism always leads to demobilization. And that's what we have to really emphasize within our ranks. So I, I, don't, I don't do well with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just you touched on something that really, really resonates with me in regard to social media, because it's not just about sharing a, a cynical perspective on what's happening in the country. There's also a very clear incentive to sow division, yeah. right? And so it's and it's not just Twitter and Facebook, but I mean YouTube, any any platform where you can monetize content, right? right. I'm noticing this uh, very clear divide based on who's willing to exploit uh, the algorithm, which uh, incentivizes and rewards division and conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I feel like it's part. Well, first, let me ask you, mm-hmm. uh, do you feel that that's playing a significant role in fracturing the left in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, it, uh, it's a combination of postmodernism and this technology. So, um, so the, the technology and the, the expansion of social media builds off of a virus that I think clearly emerged during the Reagan era. And, and it's this, I, this um, heightened individualism, entrepreneurialism that has even affected left-wing circles uh, so that people are into self-promotion as opposed to collective promotion. It's mm. all about me. 
and and positioning me uh, and and making sure that I have my picture here or my poem there or song or whatever, as opposed to the notion of the collective. Uh, and, and this has really been eroding our movement. I mean, even, I mean, it's, it's odd because you'll have um, people that will self-identify on the left, but are incredible individualists and self-promoters. And <laughs> we see that tearing our movement apart. Um, so I think there's that. But there's another thing that, is related, which I tie in with postmodernism. And I see it on uh, in the racial realm where you have this sort of exclusivity. It relates sort of to the Afro-pessimism that you were talking about before, which is that, uh, it, you know, that, for example, that there is no one that can really understand what Black people go through there is no other oppression that is like ours. Therefore, no analogy should ever be draw, drawn. And, um, and basically, everybody's against us, which is what it really comes down to. And so, one, there's a historical problem with that entire analysis. But two, what that ends up doing is becoming completely self-defeating because it's basically saying that there's no basis for alliances. There's no basis for building any kind of common block that we're on our own. And you see that not just with black folks, you see that in other struggles, which I uh, d definitely tie directly in with postmodernism. So all of these things together really do act at fragmenting our movement. And I find it, frankly, very scary. I mean, you know, I, I was saying to my wife this morning, and I say this probably about once a week, I often wonder whether I should just abandon Facebook because I yeah. find I find this stuff so obnoxious. And, and then trying to decide, all right, Fletcher, you write a lot. How much is worth your time responding to nincompoops? Right? <laughs> you know, and it's like, you don't, you know, it's like a lot of these people, you don't, do they have a base? Are they a robot? Right. Are they sitting, you know, in some cabin in Maine or I mean, like, who are they? And and I don't know. I, I, I it's very discouraging. Well, I guess the question would be, like, how do we over how do we move to post postmodernism and get out of this kind of individual self-absorption that we all are guilty of? I am guilty of it as well. Um, it is the I am a product of our time as much as anyone else. Um, how do we overcome it outside of? Uh, taking a trip out to Monte Carlo to watch the the Grand Prix, which we should do regardless, even if it doesn't. No, even absolutely. If it has no even if it has no political <laughs> no political yeah. goal. No, no, no. We should, and we should make arrangements on that. Um, yeah. And uh, so one is that I want to encourage people to look at the piece that I wrote in Monthly Review that uh, Anna you uh, so graciously announced the Mind to Come and the Future of the U.S. Left, uh, because that is uh, a partial attempt to address what you're raising. Um, I, I think going full circle, this is why the battle around history becomes so important. And it is actually why I did spend a fair amount of time the last day responding to people on Juneteenth. Because, you see, I think the right understands narrative. We don't, by and large. 
we on the left tend to think in terms of facts and throwing facts at people and that that will bring everything together. What the right understands is the importance of a narrative linked with struggle. So they are at one and the same time carrying out a battle around history through the anti-critical race theory stuff at the same time that they're engaging in voter suppression. And these two things are absolutely linked. It's not that they're doing one or the other. They're doing both at the same time and they reinforce one another. Um, the, 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 their narrative on history suggests that there are entire populations that are illegitimate, that have undermined U.S. elections, and truth be told, should never be voting. And therefore, they need to have laws that enforce that, but they need to have a storyline that reinforces that point and a storyline that attacks the truth. So our job then becomes asserting the truth, fighting very courageously and quite openly around how to understand U.S. history, including how did capitalism develop? You know, you were mentioning uh, before this whole thing about the original sin concept and where people will say the original sin is slavery. And I say, well, the original sin is actually settler colonialism and slavery. But if, if people mean original sin as something that can never be changed, then I agree with you that that is really backward. If, on the other hand, what they mean is that this is central to how one understands the creation of the U.S. state, then it is essential that people get that. And, and as, as opposed to falling prey to myth. Yeah, I mean, speaking of myth, um, now that Juneteenth is a holiday, I, you know, some are concerned and I think are justified in their concern that the history uh, of Juneteenth will be watered down. Mm -hmm. uh, that tends to happen. Yes. And so, you know, can you just discuss the real historical meaning of Juneteenth for our audience? So... Thank you. Um, so in the Civil War, uh, the thing to keep in mind always is that the North and Lincoln in particular was trying to do everything that they could do to avoid the Civil War. And they were trying to, uh, uh, ultimately when the war started, conduct the war on the basis of bringing the Union back together, but not touching slavery. Um, the problem was that the slaves had a different idea. So when the war started, and, and uh, Du Bois documents this in the beginning of Black Reconstruction, he has what, what he, you have what he called the, the great general strike. That in effect, what happened is that hundreds of thousands of African slaves abandoned plantations, abandoned other forms of work, and started walking to the front lines where the Union troops were confronting the Confederates. And that this really obstructed the war uh, effort of the Confederates. When Lincoln finally concludes that the war needs to take on the issue of slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation is, in effect, a noble document, but it's a compromise document. 
because it it basically freed the slaves that the union did not control. Um, and so you then go through a period from 1863 to 1865 where the war increasingly takes on the character of a liberation war or an emancipation war. Greater numbers of African uh, former slaves are enlisting or in other ways supporting the Union war effort, and it's fracturing the Confederacy. The Confederacy, Confederacy can't do this. And on top of that, there was growing international support for the Union and, and, and opposition to slavery. Uh, English workers, for example, refused to unload cotton uh, that was coming from the Confederate South, even though that was against their immediate material interests. Um, the Russians uh, at that time expressed their support uh, for the federal government. So you had this convergence of forces. The When Lee surrenders in Appomattox in April of 1865, the Civil War does not end it starts to wind down and it ends slowly over several months. So when Union troops reached Texas in June of 1865, Texas had not been basically touched by Union troops during the Civil War. So the Union troops arrived, many of them African uh, um, soldiers, who then spread the word about uh, emancipation that emancipation to come, slavery was over. So in effect, Juneteenth is symbolizing the formal end of slavery. Um, and I would say, in addition, the victory of an emancipation war. And that's the thing that, that I would want to emphasize and why I keep coming back to Du Bois and his brilliant analysis and particularly uh, what he says about the great general strike. Well, um, I think that that's a good place to uh, to to wrap it. Bill uh, Fletcher Jr., thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us with your your wisdom. Um, the real history of Juneteenth. I mean, I cannot wait until it just gets turned into like uh, I don't know, like it was like all just one big happy family that just you know we just did a thing and then it was all over. No violence, right. no nothing, nothing. Uh, it was just a. It was very civil and polite. Um, or so. or a sale event for for retailers. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, oh yeah yeah yeah. Well, it's it, already it that's already happening. It will. Think about Labor Day. I mean, it's just, you know, think about uh Martin Luther King's birthday. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And that's why as opposed to what we often do, which has become very passive, uh we have to keep pushing. Not just the larger demands, but pushing to remind people what does this day symbolize? Right. Well, the, thank they, you so we, much can, for joining us. Thank you. They can well, send their friends this episode and they will know. All right. Here we go. Thanks very much and take care. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Bill Fletcher. That Jr. was great. Love, so, love the wisdom. Love wisdom coming on the Jacobin show. You know, that's always definitely. that's always very appreciated. You know, oh, so Kale, his, uh, who is his mystery book. Oh, there it is. The mystery the book. book. Murder Buy mystery. Book. Yeah. <laughs> this the, that's, that's, that's awesome. our. This is our Juneteenth sale right now. By, by Why Bill did he Fletcher's fall from book. the sky? I already have so many questions. Why did he fall from the sky? Where did he come? Like, was he like? Did he come from outer space, or was he launched from the ground up into the sky and then back down? It's so many questions. 
I know if only uh, Bill already left, we can't I can't get into it. But you should read the book and find out. So I'm just getting getting some brownie points. All right, uh, we're kind of we're at a we're basically at the end of the show. Uh, where typically we do super chats, but Nando has to watch the Spain game. Okay, well we uh, could do we could do one or two super chats <laughs> for the people because yeah, we promised them we promised them the super chats and we can do the super chats. If right, Spain so, scores a goal, I'll be so angry with all of you. Uh, we could just stream it live. We can just have yeah. We should just like do like a like a Twitch party uh, where, where people do that. No, okay, don't fine. do that. Yeah, they'll, they'll take the stream. Yeah, down. Destroy, like, immediately. Okay, destroy the entire channel in, in ten minutes. Um, send us a super chat. I'm I'm just looking around. See, um, we I did. There was a question that came in earlier that we did uh, toss to Bill because I thought it made much more sense to to ask him yes. than us. Yeah, and thank you, Eclectic, for that question. It was a good one. Yeah. Um, well, it'd be funny if we just stayed on, said nothing, and, and Nando missed like the first goal or something for no for no reason. <laughs> just you know. <laughs> Yeah, fine. Just, we're just here. gonna sit here. This is Nando this looks is so uncomfortable. He's like itching. <laughs> He's getting high. You know, the Euro Cup is very important. You guys, you guys only think about the World Cup, but the Euro Cup is like the second most important thing. It's like right below the World Cup. Um, no, Nando, you know, why are you? So I think it's super important. I'm Eurocentric. That's me. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, uh, even if you don't send us any questions, uh, we appreciate uh, all of you anyways, and we hope that everyone has a very uh, well Juneteenth. Hopefully you party it up like it's typically partied up uh, if you're in Texas. <laughs> typically, Someone Juneteenth is very is mad. Like Someone's very mad that I'm watching international soccer. It says, boo, Nando, no international footy, boycott international. I'm like, that's a that's a good uh like hot take to like really stand up like no international only club soccer that's yeah that's interesting. We're, i've never really seen that we're internationalists uh, you know on the left yeah, so we uh that's true yeah we uh we don't like club nationalism um but anyways the end of the yeah i mean the way juneteenth is celebrated these days um where it has been over the years has been like a massive barbecue like it's just like a great big uh it's, it's like akin to something like like a july 4th cookout or something um there's a really good piece actually uh in damage magazine from last year by a friend of the show amber lee frost mm. uh that you should read um and i will put that somewhere in the thing um the thing, the things that we do online. I've recently gotten very into barbecuing. I bought a Weber grill, and it's changed my life. I barbecue basically every night. Yeah. Barbecuing is all- awesome. I wish I could do that. Like, I don't have outdoor space, so I can't. Yeah. But charcoal I, like, grill, if baby. If I ever do, yeah, yeah it's awesome. Vegetables. We did some fish on it. We did some shrimp on it. Mm. It's great. Grilled food is the best food. It it's just it always tastes better when it's grilled. Yeah. 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 Just hits you right in the reptilian brain. Just that's right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, have um, I hope people do some grilling. Have a good uh, weekend. I'm not seeing any questions. Um, here's a super chat. We'll end up this that's one. A good one. There we go. Oh, hey, champagne. There we go. Showing some love. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. I'm gonna dip out. Alrighty. But uh, good. Have a good weekend. Bye bye. All right. All right. Well, thank you everyone for watching. Um, obviously, we love doing the show. We love um, having you guys join us. Like and share the stream. Um, it'll help to get some more uh, eyeballs on our programming. 
you know, it's it's an important show, I think, uh, that does these deep dives that you're not going to get anywhere else. So um, please help support us in that way. And of course, subscribe to the magazine. And Nando, let's let's be on our way. Let's go. Let's do it. Do our thing. Let's yes. Do it. All right. So thank you, everyone. Have a great weekend. Oh, we'll Spain just scored. No, no way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. I hate, you. I hate you. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Thank you.